Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On the podcast today, I'm talking to Christiana Malam, who is the chief executive of the National Association of Link Workers. We're talking about how social prescribing can help practices and GPs to meet demand and better support their patients. Christiana also explains why it's so important that the NHS looks at changing the way that it works, given that the current model is not meeting the needs of patients. She highlights the key role that social prescribing can play in prevention and addressing health inequalities. The National Association of Link Workers also trains care navigators, and we discuss what the recent access recovery plan had to say about care navigation and what this all means for practices and their reception teams. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast now by Christiana Mellum, who is the Chief Executive of the National Association of Link Workers, the UK professional membership network for social prescribing link workers. Christiana is a big believer in the power of social prescribing to help tackle inequalities and improve outcomes. And she sees social prescribing link workers as having a crucial role in improving the health and well-being of local populations, as well as supporting GP practices. I've seen her speak at a number of events. It's really clear how passionate she is about this. And I know she's very much in demand and a very busy person. So thank you so much for finding the time to come on the podcast, Christiana. Thank you for having me. Can you just explain a little bit about what the National Association Link Workers is and what it is you're aiming to do? Basically, we are a grassroots social movement. So we are leading on the link worker model. And that's basically a non-clinical approach to tackling health inequalities, but also supporting to improve the health and well-being of people from a holistic perspective. It is personalised and most importantly, it is asset-based because sometimes when we describe health inequalities, it's almost like a deficit model. But then when we work with people, it is transformative because we come from an asset-based perspective. So we are an independent professional body for social prescribing link workers and, of course, their employers as well. Um, And we are also a voice for the profession. And what's your background? How did you become interested in all of this? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, my background is in public health. So I already have a a background in public health and health promotion. I'm also a visiting lecturer currently at Birmingham City University um, in in public health. I am also researching, doing a PhD research in social prescribing and health inequalities. But I have worked as a healthcare assistant. I've worked as a health trainer. I've worked as a health champion, patient and public voice, health promotion specialist, primary care liaison, community engagement worker. So you can see how all of these is about primary care, community engagement, population health, and can see how all of that then fit in. So I just feel my whole entire career has been about social prescribing. And it's just really great that we've got a name for it and it's embedded in the healthcare service, which is the exciting thing about it. To cut the long story short, about six years ago, I was at a conference uh, where it was a social prescribing conference. And uh, one of the speakers was just describing the role of the social prescribing link workers incorrectly in my books. And I was the only bold one that, that challenged the speaker. And then during the break, the social prescribing link workers that were there, they just surrounded me and uh, basically made me their leader. And then we decided to organize. <laughs> That's a great story. What do you think are some of the misconceptions around social prescribing and why did you feel you had to put that person right at that conference? 
it's not a prescription model. Everything is co-produced. And what it is, is actually trying mm. to, because the, the biomedical model, I know some people might agree with me or not, it's coming from more kind of like power-driven uh, approach, whereas the way that we work with people uh, is more personalized. So therefore, we don't have to tell them what to do. We're helping them to actually talk themselves into doing what they want to do. And it's more empowering. So there's nothing prescriptive about it. And it's not about putting people in groups and treatment and all of that. So people don't understand it. They just take a clinical and medical perspective straight up. And the, it's just very important. And then some people as well, they think they're glorified signposters. No, the reason when people get excited about social prescribing, I ask them, why do you get excited? For me, basically, the reason why I am excited about it is because you've got this practical person who can actually support people. Because we talk about prevention. Prevention is not a pill you can swallow you need to actually do the work by working people on a one-to-one, not just keep researching, because that's what we're very good at in public health. We're very good at talking, isn't it? You need somebody who's actually on the ground doing the work and intervening on some of those barriers. So we, that is the way the social prescriber link workers work with people before you even get to the signposting bit. So the misconception about it being a prescription model or signposting bit, not actually acknowledging the complexity and the casework that goes on was part of the things that I was challenging. You know, you're obviously a really passionate believer in the power of social prescribing. Why do you think it's so important? So it was the Royal College of GPs that called for the rollout of social prescribing link workers in every practice because the evidence did show that about 20% of GP appointments were for non-clinical or social needs. And more recently, we can see that during COVID, another research was done and about 40% is for mental health. So people already assess general practice for uh, is a place where they go to to assess both their clinical and non-clinical needs. And what's been happening is we've not been able to have a resource to be able to attend to that. So it's either we support the person to medicalize this or it just leads to signposting, whereas the person needs some uncovering. They need somebody to sit down to uncover that. So I think it is the 21st century healthcare, the way that we need to deliver healthcare. If you also look at the way that primary care came about, what well, it came about, the, the, the differentiation between it and all the specialist care, because we needed universal care for all. We needed to have that access. And this is the reason why NHS England keeps banging about access, because that is what primary care is about. It's about universal access. So once there's a problem there, then the state has to intervene. You touched there on how important it is in general practice and about the fact that the RCGP has been a big advocate for this model. How does it help GPs day to day and how does it help practices day to day by investing in having a social prescribing team and making them part of their team? I think in, in answering that question, we just need a bit of a diagnosis of the, the challenges that the healthcare face and how it got into it. It's yeah. because nobody was actually doing the prevention work, just say primary care. But then it almost became like a crisis service. So if you look at all the public sector organizations, they're all chasing crisis. No one is intervening in the underlying vulnerabilities. And then you're never going to be able to have enough staff to deal with that. The population is growing, if you check the modeling. So what, what social prescribing has done was to actually give us hope and help us to get back into the right direction. It's about proactive care and it's also about reactive care, where somebody has got time to get to the underlying vulnerabilities that is actually leading to this demand. So if you um, have a look at even the primary care access recovery plan, it did mention that the social prescribing link workers are managing over 1.6 million referrals. So 
the, the demand and the need is there. The NHS long-term target that was set, social prescribing link workers met that two years early. So it is clearly responding to an unmet need, which because we've not even been able to meet those needs earlier on, that's the reason why we're having the health challenges that we're having, but it now gives us an opportunity to get back on track because we need to be able to empower people. People are used to the way that the healthcare is designed where it's almost disempowering, where you have to be reliant on the NHS. That's just the way it's been reliant on the NHS, reliant on the GP, reliant on healthcare professionals, where people feel like they can't take control. And when you're not in control of your, of your life, that's where some of these challenges stand. So what the social prescribing link workers is, is doing is not only helping to reduce the uh, demand or the pressures on the health service, it's also helping people to take control of their health and well-being, bringing in communities and helping us to get back to how we are as human beings, the things that make us happy and giving people permission that you can actually survive, you can actually enjoy your life. Even though you're living with disabilities or you've planned your life in a certain way and something goes wrong, you can actually bounce back. So nobody has actually been doing that sort of work, supporting people to either manage their condition in a way that matters to them without um, stereotyping or um, not having the time to sit down. Before you can actually understand what the challenges are, you need the time and that care needs to be personalised as well. You see social prescribers having that role within the community, but they're also people who are kind of active in their community and improving things for everybody. Is that right? Social prescribing is a service. If you even look at the DARES, um, yeah. it mentions that as a service. So this is a service that general practice is providing. And of course, other settings provide that. But we're talking about general practice setting. Within that, the two key elements there is the social prescriber link worker and the community assets that they um, connect mm. people to. So if you look at the philosophy, the philosophy basically is around having a support infrastructure around the person in the community. So there are blocks, there are barriers, there are things that is preventing people. So that's the upstream, isn't it? That's preventing people from being able to um, take control or do the things which the evidence suggests is healthy or is good for them. So you need somebody to work with people to find those things and then help help them to connect them to what manasseh them within the community. So you've got that element. So they are first contact practitioners. Look at the CQC guidance on that as well. Some of them receive referrals directly from members of the practice team and also self-referral. We've just published a report on social prescribing referrals and the two highest uh, referral routes was from GP practices and the second was self-referral. Their role is not just sitting behind the desk because they are doing casework. So it's different kind of like 15 minutes appointment or 10 minutes appointment is casework. And like what I was saying, the reason why we are facing the challenges that we face now is the lack of time. So they give people time and also in order to find those solutions, they have to, of course, be in the community and they're not restricted in terms of the way they work with people. They do home visits, they can meet them where it's safe and where people want. It's almost like it's a cultural shift because what is it introducing is not kind of like the usual way that we've been working and we've seen that the usual way we've been working for the past 75 years has not done us you know it hasn't met people's needs we need to meet their holistic needs and it just means we need to change basically
You touched on um, the access recovery plan there, and I wanted to ask you about something about that because the National Association of Link Workers also trains care navigators. And in that access recovery plan, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that NHS England sees care navigation as absolutely essential to helping improve access for patients. So can you explain exactly what you see care navigation is and how it should work when it's done well. From our experience of having trained hundreds of GP receptionists, we think they're care navigators. I mean, it's not fair to describe their role as receptionists. So we're designing care based mm. on the patient's need. They need a gateway, not a secretary. So what we're doing is that we are telling the, the patient, this person is a secretary, which is the reason why they don't then understand why you have to ask them questions. But the amount of knowledge and the work that the GP receptionists do, it falls within the umbrella of care navigation. But then we needed to have um, patient experience uh, really go down, you know, be very low for us to have the case for this. So we've always uh, felt that their role is, is, is care navigation. So they're doing, they just need to have the right training to be able to do that. So for me, the, the access recovery plan is about equitable access, is about, you know, offering people choice. It's just that the way sometimes that we land things, we see in a different kind of way. This is what we're supposed to be doing all along. So what you're doing there is a care navigation, isn't it? The care navigation is about informed choice for patients. Uh, it's about, it has to be personalized because you, you need to be able to get the right information. And then it's about fairness to all. So that is, that is what it's about. It's about helping people to get the right care that they need. In order to get there, you need the front of house, isn't it? But it's just at the front of house, we've been describing them as a secretary. A secretary works in the back office. And that is what we're describing the GP receptionist. So it does a mental, there's a mental block that it presents to the patient where they feel that, why am I? Because a secretary, you take down the information. And then you can pass it on. But if you're a care navigator and the GP receptionist, of course, they're being employed and even their job description, they understand the ethos of personalization and understand, obviously, the NHS constitution, the rights, the attitude changes for both the receptionist and also the patient and also the way we do things. So what is needed there is basically uh, the right training, the right protocols that you need, buying from patient, buying from the MDT. But I think it's the, it's the right approach to do to bring us in line with other industries, basically. Do you think it's really important that practices communicate this new way of working to patients for if it's going to be successful? I think the first thing is all GP receptionists should be trained in care navigation. I don't think that there is a what they're doing is receptionists. I think so. Yes, the NHS uh, offer is going to be one person, but I think GP practices should think carefully. This is about transformation and how you're going to sustain your practice. It's just not. It's not just feasible the way we've been designing things. So, so the all GP receptionist needs to be trained in, in care navigation. And again, the, the challenge as well, it's not like the patients still don't buy in. It's, you're introducing a change. You need to carry people along. I've had some ICS where they, they, they have said to the social prescriber link workers to hand over the directory to the GP receptionist to meet their self-referral because they need to implement self-referral by September. That's not the way you do things. You're introducing a change. You need to see this as a change. And basically, there are various models. You can use Cotter's change model. There are various ways of how you introduce change. That's not just the way that it works. We've done a report that we did with PPGs as well. You can see how they're working well with their social prescribing link workers. There's a lot of innovation there. The challenge is that we are not recognizing or maybe in denial 
of the challenges that we face and the resources we have. The resources we have is the community and the non-clinical. That is where the capacity is right now. You've got your PPGs. There's opportunity there for innovative work. People want to help. We've seen it happen before. It happened during the coronavirus. We were able to engage the community. We called on people and they did that. There's nothing stops us from doing that to implement the access plan. One of the things I did wonder is that some receptionists may find the idea of taking on this care navigation role sort of quite daunting, but you seem to think that they're kind of doing it to a certain level already anyway. But what would you say to to them and to practices who are worried about taking on this role? Obviously, when a change gets introduced, you then have to try to allay fears and understand where people's concerns might be. I mean, even when we did the, you know, to do the care navigation training, they, they're quite very, they want to help. They're really quite passionate about this. It's, it's the support. That's the challenge. So I've spoken with some GP receptionists who have even left. And by this access recovery plan and the care navigators, I got them all excited again. So some of them want to come back. So there, there is an opportunity here. It's about the support. But then it's the landing, is the implementation. If you're supporting them with the right training, the practice manager or reception manager is there when people kind of like need support. You have engaged the members of the MDT, of course, including social prescribing link workers. You've got GP support. You've got patient support. So we need to see this as a change program and you need to plan your implementation. Definitely. In terms of sort of social prescribers and care navigators, is there sort of any overlap there? And how can practices make sure that those two roles work effectively together? For us, basically, these are all navigation roles. So you've got, you know, this is not even going to be the only navigation roles. And what are navigation roles? Navigation roles are basically roles that are trying to get people to the right support and care. So there is element of signposting in both of the roles. The difference is in the level of support and the time that is given. So the social prescribing link worker, they do a one-to-one work. Uh, they manage caseload with people. They are also working on the proactive access, not just the reactive access. That's where the health inequalities, be the population health management, community bay, and all of that uh, sort of like comes in. So if you like, there is that continuity of care. They produce personalized plan with people as well. And then they also do supported signposting because what we've been missing and the reason for the social prescriber link workers role and why I'm so passionate about it is because it's upstream. So what's been happening is most of the health inequalities policies is about lifestyle and nobody's intervening in the upstream some of those social and wider determinants those barriers that is preventing people from getting there so what you get is those that are already sort of engaged they just take advantage of it and then these are the people people class as complex but those are the people that will reduce the pressure and cost more money so you need to work with them so the social prescribing link workers role is a bit about complexity element of it so there is that You're designing that based on needs. The patient needs a gateway, which you've got the care navigator, needs to provide the information, collect the information, be aware of the supports that's available, including individuals. Some of those uh, referral might be to a social prescriber link worker to do proactive work with people one-to-one basis and manage caseload. Somebody just needs information. They've identified what they, they need. You just signpost them. You mentioned something there, which I think is quite important, is that social prescribers are often going to be dealing with some of the most challenging and complex patients just by the nature of what they do and the patients that are likely to be referred to them. What sort of training and support do practices or primary care networks need to provide to social prescribers to help them do their jobs, particularly bearing that sort of context in mind? 
now that we know what we're doing, so the program has been running, we're now in the fifth year, so it's not like early days where there isn't lots of support available out there. You've got the National Association of Link Workers. We provide support as well. The social prescribing, the beauty of it is that, yes, you've got um, an underpinning or a generic uh, model or ethos of what it is about, but in terms of the application, it's based on local delivery and your local population. So the population that you've got or the cohorts that you might be focusing on, their needs may vary. So this is where obviously the training uh, needs analysis or finding out from the social prescribing link workers what their needs might be will be uh, locally um, determined based on the local population health need and your local um, social prescribing model. But we have got our education standards, which of course has been endorsed by Unison um, as well, which should be the minimum because some people come into this role without a formal training background. You need to baseline this and help people to be able to develop within that. Because what then happens is this role is very much dependent on the outcomes you get. It's very heavily dependent on the social prescribing link worker you're able to get. So therefore, if the social prescribing link worker is not able to carry out the role or they're not being supported, then you might struggle to have that outcome as well. So what we say systems, look at our education standards. You've also got the NHS England social prescribing development framework that highlights all the things that we need. So now there's lots of information in terms of what we need to do. And at NLW, we also provide um, supervision as well, if that's where you know practices are struggling with capacity to, to do that. So there are some elements of support that we're able um, to provide, but that should not replace the need to review what their training needs might be because things change where you then need to review what training needs that they might need. And that has to be determined locally. Obviously, you represent link workers. So from their point of view, what are some of the biggest challenges that they face? And is there anything that practices and PCNs can do to help overcome those? The key thing there is the capacity. So if just that report that I mentioned around the social prescribing referrals, um, you can see where their their caseload because the, the the modeling and the numbers that was rolled out. This was before we had the COVID uh, pandemic. So of course the needs, the more the pressure on the system, the more you're having waiting lists everywhere, the more the demand for the work of the link worker. So there are capacity issues, and we 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 desperately need uh, PCNs and practices to start recruiting more. Also, there are some that there are underspent in they haven't all used the as funding. Also, the ICSs within primary care access plan, they, they were mentioned to support the link workers in their development as well. So it'd be good if they actually check in. This role is not it's ongoing learning for systems. This role is not the same with um, other clinicians' role, uh, 15 minutes appointment, 10 minutes appointment. That's not just the way that it works. Some people, we see them over six to seven times and the times are longer. That's the reason why we get the outcomes. This is about transformation. It's not just about appointment numbers. What we're trying to do is to support people, embed them in the community, and then therefore they know what to do next time or they start living their lives. So it's not just about providing just the appointments, the work that we're doing. So we need people to be interested and understand the role rather than just seeing this as a tick box exercise. We need to take it seriously because this is about the sustainability of the healthcare service. Like I mentioned, the past 75 years, look at where we are now. How are we going to deal with all of this when we clearly can see that there is waiting lists everywhere? We haven't got enough capacity. We have to make use of the resources we have, empowering people to see how we can support them to do a bit more things uh, for themselves as well. 
sustainability. I know that the NHS England has, of course, guaranteed those that have got a permanent contract to be considered as part of the core GP contract. But I think that the PCS should still look at ways of, you know, seeing those, how many people that are actually on a permanent contract, but also reassuring their team, because we are doing the reassurance that this is something that is ongoing as well. And, and ultimately embed them, because I don't see how you're going to be able to deliver this access plan if the GP receptionist care navigator and the social prescribing link workers and all the members of the team don't have any. So in some areas, the social prescribing link ones, they don't have a presence in the practice. They just only once in six months or <laughs> once in one year. And so I know that there is a problem with estates, but we need to find a way to at least make some space where at least they can come in and things like that. I've heard you talk about co-production before. Now, this is something that's kind of a bit of a buzzword and it's becoming sort of a big thing in the NHS. Why is co-production important and how does it fit in alongside social prescribing? Well, I think co-production, it increases accountability. And, and and of course, you can't get that without without trust. This is the reason why co-production is fundamental to the way the social prescribing link workers work, because they work with the people over time and then they, they end their trust. Um, they feel like you're not trying to make them to do anything, which for some people is really strange because it's either you stop smoking or you stop doing that and they just find it, wow, I can't believe you just want to listen and support me and what I want to do. So you end that trust and then you're trying to identify what matters to them and you're co-producing a solution. So there is this sense of ownership that people get when you're telling people that's why social prescribing is about what matters to you. That is co-production. What sort of evidence have we got? Is there evidence starting to emerge to sort of show the the power that social prescribing can have and, and the effectiveness of social prescribing? What we actually need to be asking ourselves first is, what is the purpose of general practice? Like I said, we need to go back to history. Why was primary care created? And now evaluate what we've been doing. Most of uh, my colleagues who say is the underfunding and all of it. We need to go and look at what we've been doing. I feel is a crisis service. We've not actually done proper primary work or, or that generalist, which we're beginning to kind of like move to specialists. So this is the reason why you're getting before you get help. It's almost feeling like you need to get to a crisis bit. And I think that what social prescribing represent is an unmet need. So. Yes, we need to uh, look at various uh, elements of it within that patient's journey to evaluate and uh, look at maybe which model is more uh, effective than, than others. And think, But I don't think it's about effectiveness of social prescribing or the role of the link workers because that is clearly representing a need. We have over 1.6 million referrals that uh, we are managing. So the need there is very clear that this is a need that they're actually meeting. So what's going on is already enough evidence that there is some things that we didn't do. No one was intervening in the underlying vulnerabilities. We've got lots of sick people now that we need to deal with. And then we've got people that feel unempowered, that they have to be very reliant on the NHS for everything. And the strategy cannot be to stop them. You have to provide the solution then gradually then start building their motivation and confidence to be able um, 
to do that as well. But the evidence does suggest that it does reduce pressure in primary care. So the National Academy for Social Prescribing has got an evidence collaborative where it brings together uh, a, a number of academics and, and researchers, and it, it does have an evidence summary that does say it does reduce pressure in primary care and save cost. Uh, however, the evidence, um, secondary care was, was inconclusive, but there were some reported studies that did show uh, a reduction. And also the return on investment. I mean, um, if I calculate how many appointments that we've delivered. <laughs> if, if it was a GP that was delivering that, that would be, of course, be more expensive. It's also reimagining the way that we're talking about this and, and the evidence. We've always had the uh, evidence kind of like physical activity or all the things that gets in the way. We the, those, those are already evidence-based in terms of the benefits of that. Is the engagement how do you get people to engage with that? And like what I've been saying is the upstream. We're very, very much about the lifestyle drift where you get, and this is the danger now, you see, we need to make sure that the social prescribing isn't about the lifestyle drift again, because you only be servicing a few and not the people that really, really need it. Which some people, because of, oh, it's fast. It's just somebody comes to you and they are having, they're not sleeping well because of the employment issues that they're going through, not being able to find work. Well, they've identified that as something that's affecting their health. So what's the treatment for that? The treatment is social, it's not clinical. So if we don't have time to get to the root cause, to navigate, to support this person, the quick fix might just be clinical, which doesn't solve the problem. So I think in terms of the case for this, and while now we've discovered this, it's just very clear. What we now need to do is to try to um, identify certain models, certain, you know, who are we reaching, who are we not reaching, making sure that we are able to follow the entire patient journey, as opposed to just counting how many numbers. Is there any sort of key bits of advice that you would give to practices and PCNs about how to get the most from their social prescribing team from all the examples you've seen and all of your own experiences? What's the key bit of advice you could give to practices? What I would say to practices is to, I mean, we need to engage in our imagination. So I know that the way that the environment is, it's kind of like means you can have the time to really think or be uh, be innovative. And the reason why I, I love general practice is because I believe that that's the innovation hub. We need to make sure that we champion this. In order to champion this, we need to understand the philosophy of what we're trying to do here. What is the strategy to reduce demand? I know on the day access is all important, but what is your strategy to reduce demand? If you don't have any strategy to reduce demand, are you not checking what the modeling, the population modeling and, and, and how long it's going to take for you to have people to support? So it has to go back to what it's supposed to be doing, which is about the community asset. Open up. I mean, it's quite really great to see some GPs where they are opening up their meeting rooms, kind of like to the communities and getting back and be more closer to the communities and thinking of how you can maximize that. And now you've got the social prescribing link workers now who are your link between the community and what you're doing. How do you utilize them to look at proactive access and also reactive access to get that mindset shift where your patients feel like they can do some things for themselves. They feel like they're more part of the practice and able to help you rather than it being um, us and them approach. So I think we do have an opportunity here to do some innovative work here that empowers people and communities. And then that's how you reduce the pressure. But if the plan is, oh, we're just here, access, on the day access, okay. What's the end game? 
we're never ever going to get out of this cycle because I'm not, I don't work for the NHS. I mean, I'm, I am independent. I am somebody who just seen that this is the right thing to do and I'm championing it. So it's not like I have any hidden agenda or anything. And if we, if people that are listening to this think about themselves as a human being, is it fair that if you're struggling in life, um, nobody supports you and then you have to actually like accept the defeats? That's not how a society survives. So if you're a GP listening to your planning to run, don't go anywhere. There is hope. I've seen lots of GPs that are now you can see them. They're actually running community meetings, group consultations. It's just really exciting. I just feel that this has allowed people to do what they want to do and blossom and not be too rigid. Some of my GP colleagues, they'd be like, what's wrong with us? The medical profession, we're too serious. They love the social prescribing because it just allows them to be a bit more, I'm not saying they're not human, but it's just... Come on, life is not so hard, but it just means... So this is why I'm saying the social prescribing is introducing an order that, of course, is going to have some people that might feel like this is stepping on toes, but there are people that enjoy it because it just normalizes how they're feeling and validates that and makes them feel feel human rather than trying to feel like you need to be too um, over over the top. So they, they can champion this. And because it's non-clinical, if it's if you're a practice manager, if you're a GP receptionist, if you're a non-clinical person, anybody can champion this. It's not just me. It's not just the NHS. We're here. If you need NLW, if you need me, I mean, we're, we're there to help. The sustainability of the NHS is reliant on patient and uh, community empowerment in order to reduce the demand and get them enjoying their life and doing things a bit more. Thank you so much, Christiana. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks so much to Christiana. You can find more information about some of the reports and the work that Christiana mentioned during that interview in the description for this episode. I'm back next week for our regular news review. In the meantime, don't forget you can find all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com.